This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 384, A Conversation with Tony Bedard. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 384. It's our Conversation with Tony Bedard episode. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is a really fun episode. I got to ch- chat with Tony about uh, current things he's working on in comics, as well as his uh, his history of comics, uh, working for Valiant, and also working for CrossGen and Marvel, DC, etc. Um, it was a lot of fun. For me, I've been a longtime fan of the the. Uh, we're not short-lived, but I mean, it lasted for two years. But the lamented title um, and, and, and dearly missed title, Negation, from CrossGen Comics uh, that Tony wrote. I've always been a huge fan, so this was a big thrill to be able to talk to Tony about his time writing that book and also about you know what was supposed to be the ending to the Negation War storyline as well. Uh, so that was a lot of fun to be able to kind of put that to rest and actually get some answers right from the mouth of the creator. Very exciting. He also wrote um, some amazing issues of Exiles at Marvel Comics, so that was a lot of fun to be able to chat with him about that as well. So that's all coming up uh, in this episode, which uh, now one thing I want to say is that near the end of the episode, the connection, unfortunately, uh, wasn't quite as solid. Um, so it goes in and out a little. It's a little hard to listen to at some points, um, but I didn't want to cut it out because it's still a lot of good content, uh, even though it's a little harder to hear. Um, so I apologize. I know about the audio issue. Uh, it's unfortunate we tried uh, fixing the connection. We were unable to kind of get it going as solid as it was when it started, but we decided to, to kind of go on through and, and and continue the conversation uh, the way it was. Uh, we tried a few times to reconnect. So uh, it is a good episode. It's a lot of en- enjoyable material. Uh, you can email me, comic shenanigans, sorry, email me, Adam Chapman, at comic shenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. So without further ado, let's jump right into our conversation with Tony Bedard. Tony, thanks for joining the Comic Shenanigans podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Now, the first question I like to ask is uh, usually uh, when you go to a comic convention and you're signing books, what's the the most common thing people ask you to sign? Um, well, I, I'm going to guess it's um, uh, Green Lantern, New Guardians, number one. Okay. Uh, uh, I think it's probably the biggest selling one that I've done, you know, fairly recently. Um but uh, but it actually is is pretty all over the place. And and uh, what's fun actually is I've been doing this since the early '90s. Um, I started out at Valiant when the first time Valiant was around. And so uh, the last show I did was the uh, Dallas Comics Show, and uh, and I actually saw quite a few of those old Valiant's, um, old Cross Gen comics people bring. Um, so while while the Green Lantern stuff is is definitely the most common one at the, at the moment it's a treat to see those old books you know sometimes they're, they're ones i even forgot i wrote at this point <laughs> which now along that line what do you think is the weirdest one that you have seen recently that you're like whoa what is this um hmm. um i think someone brought the valiant reader which might have been the very first thing i ever wrote uh that got published and that was just sort of a you know like a guidebook to the valiant universe mm-hmm. um and, uh, um, yeah, I, 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 oh, somebody brought Psy Lords, which was a, a book that I did at Valiant way back when. And somebody at Valiant had gotten these 3D glasses that worked uh, in a way that were, where the hot colors, the, the reds, would pop forward and the cool colors like blues and greens would recede. And so 
they were like, hey, we just have to color the a comic book like this and we'll have 3D going on. And that became what they called Valiant Vision, which oh, was yeah. awful. It was just terrible. <laughs> because essentially you, you were just coloring stuff for the 3D and, and it had no bearing on, on what you were actually coloring. And so Psylords was, was all in, in that Valiant Vision. And I guess they hoped it was going to be the next Chrome cover or something. But uh, uh, it just... I, I thought it was a, a nicely drawn book that looked god-awful when they printed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. Right. And then on the weird scale, currently, um, I, I just did a uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken comic last um, uh, last fall. It was a giveaway at the uh, New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be the weirdest comic I've ever worked on. It was – I don't know if you, if you saw any of those, but it was – the idea and, and KFC came up with this idea. So God bless them for actually knowing their comics. Um, the idea was that uh, that Colonel Sanders uh, meets his evil counterpart from Earth Three, where <laughs> you know where the the crime syndicate and you know the evil Superman and the evil Batman and all those guys come from. Um, well, they've got an evil Colonel Sanders over there, and so we did a whole comic, uh, you know, about him trying to mess up uh, the Colonel's. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do how do you get a gig like that? Um, they've been throwing me some, uh, some custom comics work lately at, at DC and, um, you know, because they, they do the regular DCU stuff, of course, and, and they got the vertigo stuff going on, but, uh, but they also take these special comics, um, for, uh, you know, companies that want to, you know, use this as some sort of a promo. So, so that was one of them. Um, uh, there was one that I did, uh, in conjunction with the upcoming Suicide Squad movie that, that was, um, that's tied in with a hair gel. You know, you put it in and it changes the color of your hair. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so they, they've got the Harley colors and the Joker green and that kind of thing. And, you know, so I, I get these sort of weird requests every now and then. And then the latest one that just came out, you can find links to it online right now, um, was uh, something to do with a, an ad campaign they have in the UK called Compare the Meerkat. Okay. And, uh, which is bizarre. Um, but there, if you go to YouTube and, and just search compare the meerkat there's 20 or 30 of these uh, commercials they've been running over there with these two talking meerkats and they have russian accents and uh and it's to sell insurance but i guess it's like the geico lizard or something okay uh but here's the crazy part about that um is that i've got this comic in which two meerkats dress up like batman and robin and have to run across uh la to get to the screening of batman versus superman and the artist is neil adams what Yes. yes. So, you know, never in all my born days did I think that I'd be, you know, uh, scripting a Neil Adams drawn comic about meerkats. But that's wow. what that's, that's. <laughs> that, that insurance company must have a lot of money because Neil Adams doesn't come cheap, I would imagine. Right, right. And he did a beautiful job. It's, it's the best looking talking meerkat comic you'll ever see. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the kernel of two worlds... Um, how, how did you get out of it? Like, how did you, how did you resolve the the primary conceit? I guess don't spoil the issue for those who haven't read it, but it just um, it just sounds so bizarre, but very like very. Um, it makes me want to read it because it's that weird. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I think um, what happened was that Green uh, Green Lantern um, and uh, and the Flash are checking out this spike in in crime rates. And, and it's all centered around this um, this place, Easy Fried Chicken, that has just opened up, and it's it's run by um, the evil Colonel Sunder. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and so he, you know, where where uh, 
where Colonel Sanders wears all white, um, Colonel Sunder has a black suit, and, you know, um, Colonel Sanders is, is all about doing things the hard way. They have this sort of corporate ethos there that, you know, that's summed up in this actual little framed uh, thing. It's called the hard way. And basically it's, you know, sometime in the 1930s, I think Colonel Sanders wrote this thing about how anytime you take shortcuts, it may be cheap in the short run, but it'll always come back and get you in the long run. And so they do things, you know, the hard way. And uh, so we had to work that theme into the into the comic. And um, gosh, I'm trying to think how that whole thing, how that storyline resolved, because because uh, he was running all kinds of you know criminal gangs out of his uh, chicken place. <laughs> and Colonel Sanders gets all pissed off when he sees a commercial for this place and and uh, goes in there. And and Colonel Sanders just totally kicks ass. It's uh, you know it's actually something that the guys over at KFC demanded. They really wanted to see the Colonel you know in superhero action. So, <laughs> so but it was it was also weird because uh, when I was born in Puerto Rico, I grew up in the Philippines and didn't live in the states till I was ten. And the whole time that I was living in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Um, all my friends were from America, and they were always like, oh, I can't wait to go stateside. You know, it's, it's so much better in the States. And it built it up into, like, this almost Disneyland thing in my mind. Like, I could not wait to come to America and, and see how cool it was. <laughs> and so, you know, when we got here, it was like, you know, I'd see the KFC commercials with Colonel Sanders, and he became like an icon in my mind, you know? Like, um, I, I weirdly enough had a, a genuine love for that, uh, you know, corporate mascot, if you will. Uh so yeah, it, it, it's all very strange, but uh, we're actually working on another one. So, is it uh, a sequel or just something separate? Uh, you know, I'm not sure when and how it's going to come out. I just I know that they were so happy with the first one that they wanted to follow up, and uh, you know, I'm sure they'll release more information about that yet. I don't think it's been announced or anything, but uh, um, you know. The first one uh, was kind of strange because it was only a giveaway for the New York Comic Con. Um, you oh. can get it. You can download it for free at, Co- at Comixology, but the actual printed comic is really rare. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the minute we're done with this interview, I'm definitely going to download that. <laughs> it sounds too uh, too good to pass up. Now, when you work on a project like that, what is the process of kind of working with? Like, did you have a contact person at KFC that you kind of met, dealt with, or was your editor dealing with them, or how did that work? Um, well. Marie Javens is the one who I've been working with on a lot of these things. Well, her and a guy named Alex Antone um, uh, over at DC. And so they're the ones who are sort of the go-between. Um, but uh, but there's a lot of back and forth. You know, I'll, uh, They will usually, in this case, uh, the, the folks at KFC would, would present an idea like, you know, here's kind of what we want to do. Why don't you give us, a, you know, a few different ideas and I sent them like seven or eight different plot ideas um, and then they kind of liked one but then they kind of went and turned it around and, and into what wound up getting printed and it was better than what I had sent them and this is rare you know mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of times when you're dealing with uh, you know with with a uh, an editor or a client um, they maybe don't understand what you're trying to do uh, and, and these guys really get it um, so, uh, you know, we would just sort of bounce these things back and forth and uh, through the editor. Um, but it was really, you know, it was easy. Uh, I was just lucky that, that, like I said, they they really get it over there and, and um, they wanted to make a fun comic and so did I. 
How did, how did you choose the heroes that were used? Was that something that came from the client or that you kind of came up with as part of the plot? No, that was me. Um, I, I had suggested, uh, you know, like I said, I think I sent them like seven or eight different ideas. And each one was, was with a different uh, set of DC characters. So we actually had one idea that originated um, in, I think, with the assistant editor, uh, which was really great. It was um, uh, Granny Goodness wants to make the the best meal in the universe for dark side. And, uh, and, and naturally when she scans the universe, uh, you know, uh, original recipe chicken turns out to be the best meal, you know, anywhere. So, you know, granny and her furies come and, and, and set up a fake KFC to try and, and steal the recipe. And, uh, and then it wound up that, uh, I think Mr. Miracle came and, and, uh, talked to the Colonel. Uh, they went back to, to, uh, apocalypse. And at the end of it, um, uh, the Colonel makes the chicken for dark side. And and I think in the plot I said as as he as Darkseid licks his stony fingers, you know, the colonel knows he's won. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish we could have done that one. And there was a little bit of romance between Granny Goodness and uh, and the Colonel, which would have been hilarious. Well, that's but, too uh, funny. You know, it all worked out. <laughs> well, I'm very I'm very excited to read that. <laughs> um, now let's go way way back. What was your first kind of interaction with comics? Like, how did, were you reading them growing up, or how did you kind of, you know, on the fan end get involved? Well, you know, I, I think as a kid, um, I was born in, uh, way back in 1967, and, <laughs> uh, and so there weren't as many, uh, you know, superhero type things, you know, you could get the Batman TV show, and, and I definitely loved that when I was a kid, but there was, um, a Superman Aquaman Adventure Hour that used to come on, um, uh, the cartoon did. And, and I thought it was wonderful. And in fact, Aquaman be, remains one of my favorite characters to this day. I think it was because I felt like, hey, if he's sharing top billing with Superman, Aquaman must be, you know, an A-lister, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to this day, I, I'm praying to the gods of comics that DC will let me write the Aquaman series. You know, I mean, Jeff, Jeff finally gave him some legitimacy in, in that New 52 run. But I'd love to get my hands on that character. Um, so it was mostly things like, like cartoons and stuff, but I wasn't actually reading comics until I was around, uh, 15 years old. Um, uh, and no, actually I think I was 16 and, um, my, my first girlfriend knew that I was into Conan the Barbarian. Um, and, and so she went out and bought me a Savage Sword of Conan, uh, you know, comic. And I remember when she handed it to me, I was trying to pretend I was excited, but inside I was, I was being a real snob about it thinking, well, if it's not Robert E. Howard, then screw it, you know? <laughs> and then I cracked the thing open and looked at it. I'm like, holy crap, somebody spent a lot of time doing this. You know, it's actually, I can't believe somebody put this much work into this. You know, I had this very dim view of comics at the time, but that changed my mind. And when I told my, my friend uh, at a party later, he's like, Whoa, wait a minute. And he runs back in his room and comes out with secret wars. Uh, you know, so this was 1986, I guess. Um, and, uh, and man, that just changed my life. Uh, Secret Wars was what made me, uh, you know, a comic fan for life. Um, and then of course, when I, when I went to the comic book store to get more, I saw Crisis on Infinite Earths and, you know, uh, there were also really good, um, uh, indie books back then, like Nexus, which Mm -hmm. remains, you know, one of my top three all time comics. Um, uh, so that's when I kind of really took the deep dive. And, um, uh, I think that I always wanted to tell stories, 
Um, and, and when I saw, you know, comics, I thought, well, this is how I want to tell them because you can do anything and it's not going to, you know, you don't have a special effects budget and, you know, that sort of thing. But it didn't seem like a realistic uh, job to pursue. So I didn't actually try and become a comics writer until much later. I think I was 25. So how did you kind of, how was that, the, the original breaking into the industry, how did that work out for you? Well, um, I had, uh, I was in um, college at uh, Georgia Tech um, for aerospace engineering, and I was terrible. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, oddly enough, I, I wanted to be an astronaut. I had no idea how you did that, so I thought maybe aerospace engineering might be a track to get there, um, which was dumb. Um, and uh, and then I realized I don't want to be an engineer uh, after I flunked, you know, my, my calculus class. And so I didn't want to let that school beat me. So I switched over into a business degree, and that's what I graduated with. And then I realized I didn't want to do that either, you know. <laughs> uh, so I spent a couple of years waiting tables and partying and spinning my wheels. And then I met my uh, my future wife, um, who uh, who was studying dance. She got invited to study dance up in New York City. So I was like, oh, this is it. Let's go up there. You study dance. I'm going to try and fail to get into the comics industry, but I will at least have tried, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we moved up there, I, I um, took some night classes at the School for Visual Arts. Um, they had a, uh, a how to write comics class that was uh, written by Denny O'Neill, and a how to draw comics class that was um, that was uh, taught by uh, Carmine Infantino. Oh wow! Yeah, so <laughs> that was kind of cool, right? I was in these night classes with these two legends, um, and uh, and I learned a lot from them, but what I didn't realize was the real, you know, payoff was the other people in the class. They were all folks that wanted to do this, you know, that were serious about trying to do comics one way or another. And uh, a couple of them were already assistant editors at DC, and one of them was an intern at Valiant. He told me who to call over at Valiant to try and get an internship. So, you know, that's what I did. I got a hold of this uh, lady named Randy Brosen who worked at, at Valiant. And she let me come in for a few hours, you know, every week and just sort of help out. And, um, and that's, that was the, you know, the foot in the door because I spent as much time as I could there. They needed the help and the place was just taking off. It was about a month after, um, uh, Jim Shooter had been, uh, you know, kind of run out of the company. And, um, and so they were, you know, they were just starting to get a lot of traction in the marketplace and expand the line, and and there was opportunity there. And so um, they, after I worked for free for I don't know six months or something, they they uh, hired me into their production department. Then they moved me over into the editorial, um, and I wound up becoming executive editor and, and right hand to uh, editor in chief um, Bob Layton. So that was the best place to start because Valiant was all kind of old school and and you know. Uh, basic comics, you know, they weren't into flashy layouts. They wanted a, a, a solid story, and um, and it was just a great way to learn. And, and I'm all for flashy layouts and, and you know that kind of thing. But it's kind of like Picasso, you know, before he went to Cubism, he actually knew how to draw the the figure correctly, you know. Mm. So it was it was a great start. Um, and I was there for a couple of years, uh, and and uh, eventually they expanded too fast and kind of imploded. And, uh, and so I was part of a massive layoff. But by that point, I had made friends with a lot of uh, interesting people. Uh, I met uh, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti and, and uh, Amanda Connor back then when they were just kind of starting out um, in comics. Um, and uh, 
Uh, I met Garth Ennis and Warren Ellis. I had actually recruited them in to write Shadow Man. Um, that didn't quite work out, but at least I had made a couple of friends. And um, and the friends I made there helped open up doors. So somehow I've managed to stay in the business ever since. Now, how did your – I mean, initially – so how did your first kind of foray into DC kind of come about? I guess you're working in production, I guess, as well, right? Yeah, well, um, uh, after uh, Valiant sort of, you know, laid off uh, about half their staff, um, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Uh, I sent some samples to um, Broadway Comics, which was Jim Shooter, and, um, and he actually – you know, uh, contacted me and, and asked me to come in and do some stuff for them. And that was weird because I had just spent like the last two, two and a half years hearing nothing but horror stories about Jim Shooter, you know? <laughs> Everybody who was still there that had, you know, sort of shafted him out of that company was all like, oh, he's the worst, you know? And, and of course, I think you also see a lot of that out there, you know, just from his years at, at Marvel and stuff. And it turned out he was great. Um, you know, it was kind of... I was bracing myself like I wanted to do comics work so I was going to deal with whatever he threw at me and he treated me like a prince the whole time. It wasn't a long time and I didn't do a lot of work there but you know it just goes to show you that you can't believe everything you hear you know. Um, but uh, after I did a little work for them and that kind of dried up um, uh, Jimmy and Joe told me that Billy Tucci was looking for help um, because do you remember his comic She? Yep. Um, you know that thing was huge at one point. Oh and yeah. He was about this, uh, to ship uh, She versus Tomoe, which um, I think was uh, ordered at 90,000 copies or something. Wow. For a comic that's being published out of a basement in Queens, that's phenomenal. <laughs> and so he, you know, I think Billy knew that he had something going on there and he didn't want to let it, you know, like squander that. He needed some, some help. So Jimmy and Joe sent me his way and I wound up working for, for Billy for a couple of years. Um, and I love that guy. I, I think anybody who meets him at a at a convention knows what a character he is. Um, but you know, he's he's just terrific. Um, and so that was also a great education because we did everything in there, from soliciting to generating the content to uh, dealing with the printer. You know, I, I did comics soup to nuts there, and and uh, and learned a lot. Uh, you know, and I'm grateful for that. But at a certain point. Um, I went out for beers with Garth and uh, and his editor Dan Raspler, um, and I think at the time Axel Alonso was was assistant editor on uh, on Preacher. Okay? okay, so you know it's it's just funny sometimes when I look back and think how far people have come. You know, uh, and so we were all out drinking, and it turned out that um, that uh, Raspler needed a new uh, assistant editor, and uh, he kind of got comfortable with me that night, and. and and, um, you know, after talking to me for a few hours, you know, he was like, okay, well, you know, come in and, and interview for this. And so they wound up hiring me as the associate editor on the JLA books that, that Rassler was overseeing. He was a, a group editor and, and oversaw all the, the JLA stuff. But it meant that I got to work in an editorial capacity on uh, Grant Morrison comics and, uh, you know, and gosh, I keep going back to this whole education thing, but man, being an editor teaches you so much and I got to see you know fresh scripts coming in from Grant and from uh, Garth and from Warren Ellis and from uh, uh, Brian Azzarello in my time at, at, at DC I got to see the very best people you know how they format their scripts what what's important in them and what they leave out you know that kind of thing mm -hmm. 
and and it totally prepared me. I feel like for moving on to becoming a, a writer. Um, so yeah, that. But that was my in at at DC was was um, Garth. I think you know. Uh, he and I really hit it off. He remains a, a, a great friend. Uh, you know, maybe the biggest disappointment in my life is that I don't see him more often. If we lived in the same town, I'd be drinking with that guy every Friday night. <laughs> now, uh, while you were working in editorial there, it looks like you actually got to, to edit Aquaman. So you didn't get to write him, but you got to edit him. What was that like? Oh, uh, well, it was great. Um, and I definitely had a love for Aquaman then. Um, and, of course, uh, the creative team was um, Dan Jurgens was writing. Steve Epting was the artist. Um, I think we had uh, Norm Ratmund uh, inking uh, Steve. And um, and so when you're an editor, you learn a lot of really good stuff, but you also make mistakes, you know, and you learn from, from things that went wrong. And one thing I learned was that um, I did not uh, appreciate Steve Epting's work the way that I should have back then, you know? And I think this happens. Everybody's got their, their favorite art style, right? And and then, you know, everybody's got – I think there's art out there that, that folks don't connect to even though it's, it's successful, you know? So, for example, it took me a long time to get what Jack Kirby does, you know? Mm. I used to look at that and just think, well, that's kind of clunky, you know? And, and why has everybody got sausage fingers and, and just completely missing the point of, of, of his genius, you know? Um and so I think I was kind of in that boat with Steve. I got along great with Steve and, and, and wanted to do right by him. But um, having Norm, who was an amazing anchor, work on Steve, probably not a good marriage, you know? Because um, Steve's stuff is – the way it should be is what you see in Captain America and, and, and Velvet and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, he's just – he understands what he's going for and – and I always look back on my time editing Aquaman and think, man, I really screwed that dude. And so we wound up working together at, at CrossGen later, and I must have apologized to him ten times, you know. And he he was fine. He's the most laid back person in the world. But yeah, it, it's a funny thing editorial because you know I think that no matter how good your intentions, you're gonna wind up doing someone wrong somewhere along the line. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were editing, I guess, DC 1 million, out of that you had the Hourman series come out. What was that like to kind of shepherd a book along from the beginning? That was my my shining hour uh, editorially. Hourman is, is definitely the, you know, the thing I'm most proud of from, from my time as an editor. Um, uh, a, because um, uh, Rags Morales was a friend of mine since Valiant, and um, and I had no, I've known Rags through more personal craziness, you know, than I can repeat and, and would repeat. But I have just known this guy so well, and I always wanted to work with him. I think he's a genius. Um, but uh, but for a number of reasons, um, he had had a hard time getting traction at DC. So I felt like that that book kind of was a great springboard for him to go on and do things like Hawkman and and. Uh, um, uh, identity crisis, you know, and, mm-hmm. and some some things that he, you know, that really really worked out well for him. But the other thing about Our Man was that it was out of the spotlight, um, which sometimes is a real blessing, you know. If you're doing like the the you know the focus book of a of a big event, um, everybody has got input, everybody wants their fingers in the pie, and it's hard actually to do a good job. 
Um, if you're not in the spotlight, your sales aren't going to be so great, but you have more creative freedom. And Our Man was its own thing, man. You know, uh, I hadn't worked with Tom Pyre before that book, but he had this great sort of, you know, almost hippie sensibility um, that that made Snapper Car come to life, you know, because it was basically about Snapper Car and, and his pal Our Man um, just going through one weird thing after another. And, uh, um, and, and we just, I don't know, man, sometimes when the, when the collaboration works, you throw every crazy idea in there and, and it fits somehow. And so we had this, uh, crazy talking demon in there. Um, uh, I can't even remember what his name was. Like we didn't, we didn't want to really, uh, um, get sidetracked by this, uh, day of judgment event, mm-hmm. that, um, that had like a bunch of, you know, uh, demons and stuff running loose on earth. But w- what we did is we turned, you know, lemonade and uh, lemons into lemonade by by keeping uh, a demon in the book, and he became one of the regular cast, and he was just the funniest thing. Um, it was kind of like that. Um, uh, Rags drew this this gal Bethany, uh, who wound up being uh, uh, Snapper's girlfriend, and she was gorgeous, and she was based on I don't know, she was kind of like his dream woman, uh, Rags. Um, <laughs> I loved her because she had just this sort of you know, kind of almost a little bit hippie kind of look to her. Um, but she was sexy in a way that, that most comic girls aren't. Um, and then, uh, next thing I know, Rags is engaged, uh, to this gal who looks just like Bethany. It was almost like he had willed her into being or something. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Anyways, uh, I'm sorry. I'm just rambling. But, um, the other thing about Iron Man was that it, it was not a big seller. You know, it's not a, uh, you know, an A-list character. And I figured we probably had about a year before they canceled us. But um, the book was really starting to hit on all cylinders. And so um, uh, Mark Wade was going out to San Diego, and he's like, send me a box of, of these books. I'm going to give them out for free at the at the con. And he did. You know, he went around the con that year just giving away copies of Our Man, and it, it kind of did something. Uh, you know, it kind of um, – I think it, it gave us another year's worth of issues. Wow, so it's, it's funny how things work out. Absolutely. Now, when um, how did you then make the decision to leave DC and and go join CrossGen? Well, um, I had spent two years in in DCU editorial, then um, but I was an associate editor. I wanted to move up to editor, and when Axel left um, DC to go to Marvel to edit Spider Man, um, that left a, a an opening in um, in Vertigo. And so I think it was probably Garth that told Karen Berger, hey, why don't you, you know, hire Tony from uh, from the DCU side? And that worked out. I actually made the, the switch over there and and, um, and worked on some stuff with him and, and Warren Ellis and, and some other really good people. But after a year at, at uh, Vertigo, um, Wade calls up out of the blue and he says, hey, I'm at this place called CrossGen in Tampa. Um, uh, we need another uh, writer. You know, how would you like to come down and check it out? And which was weird for me because I was thinking, okay, I know Wade pretty well. He's a great guy. We're friends, but he's only ever known me as an editor. Why does he think I could write? You know, mm-hmm. as it happens, I, I felt like I could and I jumped at it, you know. Um, and uh, so that's kind of what did it. I, I came down, I saw what they had going on, and, um, uh, you know, I've been, in, I've worked in a lot of different places, but CrossGen might be my favorite work environment that I've ever had in comics. Well, it um, definitely sounds like the most unique from everything I've ever heard about it. Like it was just, everyone was there at one spot. <laughs> yes. That, 
was that was what made it so special. Um, because we were all under the same roof, and this would not work for everybody. I know there's plenty of folks who want to work on their own, on their own hours, in their studio, you know, and God bless them. But I thrive on, on collaboration and being around other people. So to go in there with those people and be able to, you know, uh, bat around story ideas, um, watch them as they learn from each other. I mean, every colorist who was there got to learn from Laura Martin and from uh, um, uh, Justin Ponzer, you know, um, who were like the very, very best colorists in the business, you know. So everybody that came out of there, I think, was was better off for it artistically. The oh. Pepsi's, I think about, the, you know, they had uh, Jimmy Chung and mm-hmm. um, uh, Epting, um, Butch Geis, Bart Sears, uh, you know, a lot of guys that had very different styles, but they were all teaching each other, and they were all looking over each other's shoulder and, and thinking, "Oh shit, I gotta, I gotta raise the bar here." You know, <laughs> <laughs> this guy's bringing his A game. I, I, I can't slack off. You know, it's amazing it was, to see how many how many guys work there, like and that are huge talents today. Right. Like well, it, was, it really was a hotbed of uh, of talent for both on the writing end and uh, illustrating side. It, yeah, it, it really felt that way, and and. I still regret that it, you know, eventually went under. And weirdly, it went under um, uh, very much the same way that Valiant did, you know. So I was sitting there, you know, having a great time, and then I started seeing some signs like, oh, I think I've seen this movie before, you know. (laughs) Um, And what I think what it boiled down to is that um, in both cases, uh, the publishers were trying to get their market share up over a certain um, threshold, and if they did that, you know, let's say you're, you're selling, and I'm just pulling these numbers out of the air, but let's say you had a, a publisher that's selling uh, 4% of the market. Um, and if you go over 5%, then um, your terms with Diamond Comics Distributor become suddenly a little bit better, you know? Hmm. If you're at 4%, let's say Diamond keeps half of what, what you make. Um, but if you're at 5%, maybe they only keep 30% of what you make, you know? Again, not real numbers. But it's that basic concept that if you got over a certain amount of the of the market share, you get to keep more of what you make, and that was what drove them to pump out more books than they should have in a, in too short a time. And and when you do that, you don't create new readers magically. You're just asking your existing audience to pay to buy more stuff, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. So you you know that kind of falls apart after a while, you know, um, and and. I think that that kind of explains why Valiant and why uh, CrossGen both kind of collapsed under their own weight. Uh, but until that happened, it was the CrossGen was the greatest place to work at. Uh, you know, I wish I could go back. As a, as a, um, a reader and as a fan, I remember when CrossGen first came out. I mean, I was in high school and I was like, "Oh, this is like a whole new universe." And I remember reading that first kind of. I think it was Cross Genesis or whatever that original issue was and being like, okay. And I picked up every book because it was something about having this entire universe and being able to own it all. And definitely as it progressed, it became harder and harder to do that. So it definitely resonates with me when you say that, you know, maybe they pushed it too hard and were asking too much of their, of their readership because that was an issue for me as a reader that suddenly I couldn't have them all because I just couldn't afford them all. Yeah. And that was a big thing at the beginning was that especially because, you know, they had this tied universe, but it wasn't explicitly tied, but there was a general sense that everything was kind of there together, that it kind of made you want to pick up more. Yeah, well, um, 
the other thing too was that when they first started out, I think they had four books. You yeah. know, it was like Mystic and Sigil and uh, uh, Scion and Meridian. Meridian, right? And um, and they were all very Sigil centric. You know, like uh, the 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 little tattoo that gave you your superpower, the Sigil, mm-hmm. was kind of the focus. Um, even though those books were you know set in different worlds and and um, but for me, when I showed up there, uh, what what really set them apart was that they didn't do superheroes. You know, they did it. Uh, they were doing Roos. I think that was they had just launched, so they had a, a detective book, uh, you know, a couple of fantasy books, um, you know, uh, and uh, um, a sci-fi book. And, and I, I thought, you know, instead of concentrating so much on the sigil, we should really think of ourselves as a genre. Um, publisher, you know, and, and pursue that. And that's why I was always pushing for things like uh, Route 666, um, which was a horror book that I did with um, uh, with Carl Moline. Um, Negation was a, a space opera. Uh, that one was more rooted in the sigil continuity, but I think I managed to give it its own thing, you know, its own spin. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was a one with Mike Perkins uh, that was a like an espionage book, um, you know. It, but I was always pushing for let's do more different um, uh, genres, and that's you know. So you had things like Way of the Rat, oh yeah, uh, El Cazador, the pirate book. Uh, you know, uh, I would have really wanted to keep going in that direction and, and just have that you know kind of crazy spread of, of, of uh, story types. Now, when you first came on board, what was it? I guess it's interesting to look at, you know, you're working on a mystic taking over from Ron Mars, and then yep. you also were launching Negation. Uh, what were the kind of, when you were taking over mystic, what was it like to kind of take that over? Um, well, I, uh, I started out um, with um, Brandon Peterson uh, was still drawing the book, and uh, Brandon's stuff is just so gorgeous. Um, uh, that guy's really amazing. He can do it all, too. He does you know, his own colors and stuff. Uh, um, so I was a little intimidated, you know, cause he's such a great artist. And also I think he was, he was art director at the time, you know, and I kind of wanted to not be a letdown for him. Right. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I wanted to do something to really, you know, catch people's attention. And, uh, so the very first issue I had, uh, um, Oh geez, what was her name again? Uh, I'm, try- I'm trying to remember. Oh my God. Yeah. It's been so long. <laughs> Well, Mystic, uh, uh, whatever her name was. Was it Giselle or is that was one of Giselle, them? Giselle, that's it. Yes, Ooh. yes. And she had a uh, sort of a quasi-boyfriend, uh, um, Terry or Thierry or however you, you That's right, that, yeah. Who was an artist. So um, I had a thing where uh, – a scene where he, he wanted to do a portrait of her and then he turns around and when he turns back around, she's posed but she's like nude, you know? And, uh, and we shot it from behind her. So, you know, you couldn't actually see anything and he gets all, you know, kind of shocked and caught off guard. And, uh, you know, it it was kind of this weird, awkward, neat, cute kind of moment for them, you know, where, uh, (laughs) um, she kind of misinterprets his, you know, what he wants and, and, but I wanted it to at least have a little bit of sexiness and, and, you know, edge. And, uh, and so, Brandon, he looks at the script. He's like, I don't know about this, uh, you know, because um, uh, Mark Alessi, who was the editor, uh, I mean, the uh, the publisher, um, he 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 rightly thought Mark wouldn't like that. But I was like, no, let's do it. We got to we got to do something to to you know get get some eyeballs, you know. And um, 
Uh, and that was something I had learned from working at, uh, with guys like Garth and, and Warren Ellis, you know? Those dudes always deliver some oh shit moment, something very, you know, something memorable. And uh, so sure enough, uh, Brandon draws the pages. I'm sitting in my office and the door like flies open and, and Mark walks in with this pissed off look on his face and he slaps the the pages down in front of me. He's like, what are you trying to do to me? You know, what do you think they're going to think in the Bible Belt when they see this? <laughs> and uh, And I was kind of nervous and uh, you know just stressed out because we had moved the whole family down there and if it didn't work it was going to be a huge disaster for me and I, I jumped up and got in his face and I was like I'm trying to make this interesting I'm trying to make people want to come back and, and, and read the next issue you know <laughs> and um, uh, and Mark who was kind of an alpha male dude you know it was weird because that could have really gone south but he took a step back and he was like well, okay, I want to just adjust something here and there. I understand you got your reasons. Try not to surprise me like this, you know. And But we went ahead and ran it, you know. And it was kind of a weird moment for me because Mark was the kind of guy who, if you had any uh, uh, weaknesses, you know, like he would, he would nudge you there, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just his nature, you know. And uh, But I got it, you know. He was um, – like I said, an alpha male kind of guy. And I think if he saw that you were willing to fight for your stuff, then he respected that and you were cool. And if you didn't push back, you were in more trouble with him than, you know, so it turned out to be just fine. Um, uh, but that was kind of a turning point for me and him. I actually got along with Mark great. And, uh, and Mark's another one of these guys, um, maybe not on the level of, uh, of shooter, but there are folks out there who, who, you know, will say bad things about Mark and tell bad stories I don't, you know, I don't have any problem with him at all. He he uh, he spent a lot of his money to give us all a great opportunity to, to create, and uh, I will always be grateful for that. Now I want to talk about negation because I was a huge fan of that book, and I've, I've the the chance to talk to uh, the guy who wrote it is an immense opportunity for me, and very <laughs> exciting because I was a huge fan of that book, and I I've always gone back to it and read it because it's just I think it's extremely well written and just a very engaging book but the first question I want to ask you about negation is where did you come up with Bohica? Oh um, okay well you know how I said that as an editor my, my proudest moment was Our Man yes um, I think as a writer my proudest moment it's kind of a tie between negation and Route 666 um uh, one of the magical things about uh, CrossGen was that there were no editors there. You know, it was really down to the creative team to do their best work. You know, and um, and you got a little. You know, sometimes you got Mark coming in and wondering why I, I wanted this scene. You know, with Giselle with no clothes on. But uh, um, but for the most part, you know, you 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 failed or succeeded on your own merits. So um, so negation. Uh, was a real total team effort, and uh, and the great thing about everybody being on site is that um, when I when I was working on the next next month's issue, uh, I, I'd tell the, the guys, you know, Paul Pelletier, the the penciler, um, uh, Dave Micus, the inker, um, uh, uh, Dave, uh, Dave Rochelle. Uh, I don't think I've got Rochelle's first name right. Anyways, he was the colorist. I think it's James James Rochelle. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, all of us would sit down and lunch together and I would verbally pitch him, here's what's happening in the next issue, you know, beat by beat. And I could sit there and just watch their faces while I do it. And, um, 
and if they were smiling and they were into it, then great. And a lot of times, the the, the colorist or the inker, guys who never have a, any input, would be like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if this happened? Or what if such, such and such said this? And I'd be just taking notes and try and get everything in there that I could, you know? And, and uh, it wasn't like I was out to steal ideas. I just wanted everyone to have a piece of this, you know? And, uh, and it didn't matter. It wasn't me trying to make a personal statement. It was all of us trying to be better than any one of us could. So, you know, uh, conversely, uh, I would pitch things they didn't like, and I'd have to cut them. And there was one time where I wanted to do something with a, a, a torpedo, like a space torpedo that's flying after the, the ship that, that our heroes are on. And it was kind of funny, and Paul just didn't want to draw it. He just thought it was the most unvisual thing ever, you know? <laughs> and, and he won that fight, you know? But it, we were, like, legit mad at each other for, for a couple days, I think. And then finally I was just like, okay, you're right. You know, let's do something else. Um, uh, so blah, blah, blah. You get the idea that, that that's kind of what made uh, CrossGen special is that we could really get everybody's voice in there and everybody was creatively invested. Um, so as far as Bohica's concerned, um, I knew that uh, that Kane, our, uh, our our you know main character in Negation, was uh, a guy with a military background, and you know he's kind of a Captain America character. He didn't have Captain America's you know enhanced physiology, but you know the neat thing about Cap is he's sort of the, the apex of what's what's human, but he's still human. And so um, Kane was going to have to be a guy who, who succeeded on his know-how and force of personality and. You know, and I wanted him to sound like a uh, like a real uh, military guy. So I did a lot of research on military slang and stuff to pepper that into his dialogue. And that's you know, on one of these sites, if you Google uh, military slang, that's where I found Bohica and, and a few other choice uh, things. But Bohica was the one that really stuck. It kind of became the you know the rallying cry for those guys. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it was. It definitely took on a life of its own, I guess. <laughs> And, and, you know, I didn't want to go with, like, foobar or something that was, you know, kind of overdone. But I had never seen Bohica before, and so, you know, we kind of lucked out there. Yeah, I mean, if you hadn't said that, I would have just assumed that you came up with it because, I, again, I've never heard of it anywhere. It's it's a real military, you know, term. Bend over, here it comes again. <laughs> yeah. and, and the fun part, too, was that, we got to say that a few times before Cain finally explains to Heavenly what it means, mm-hmm. you know, and the thought of explaining to a goddess, you know, this <laughs> the, you know, uh, a course thing was, it was a good moment. Now, when you're writing, um, did you know right from the beginning that you were, you know, going to kill characters off here and there? Like the, what always kind of made it exciting was that you didn't know who was going to live and die. And I, obviously part of that is that it's a, it's a new book. It's an, a company where it doesn't have these legacy characters and right. you can kind of do that. But it, always, it just always made it feel so vital and vibrant because anyone could die at any time. Yeah, yeah. I think that was part of the plan from the beginning. Um, you know, it, we had the luxury that in a sense, these characters were disposable because they weren't, you know, it wasn't like the, you know, like Captain America or something. Oh, well, hell, he got killed off. But you know that, <laughs> you know, with those guys that at least someone's going to step in and they'll come back later, you know. But yeah, dead meant dead in, uh, in negation. And that did keep it interesting. And we had, actually, it gave us some of our best moments. Um, there was a character named Matua in there who was this sort That's of... That's what I was going to say, yeah. His yeah. death was extremely... Uh, wow, it was really good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because you really... You, it's interesting because even though you know the series didn't run that long, 
Um, you f- I felt as a reader very invested in those characters, and they didn't all maybe get a lot of screen time, but you made the most of the screen time they got, and they yeah. all kind of they all usually got a moment to shine, and you understood you know what they were about and who they were. So even though you know as I said, the book didn't last a long time, but you know I felt like I knew those characters. Yeah, well, another nice thing that that I got to do there was to give each character a spotlight issue, you know, and and that was very much part of the plan. Um, we had a, a, a bigger story for the whole group, but, um, you know, I tried to structure it so this issue was about this particular character or maybe these two characters. And, and it, it, you know, with that big of a cast, it still gave us a chance to, to go in depth with them. Um, and that's a, a hard thing to do at, a, at, say, one of the big two, you know, because I've written a lot of team books. And, um, and a lot of times, if I'm writing for Marvel or DC, uh, I'm likely to get a note back from the editor saying, you know, hey, what happened to the rest of the guys? You know, um, we need to give everyone screen time. And unfortunately, I feel like that winds up giving everybody a lot of very shallow screen time, you know. Hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we didn't have that problem at CrossGen, and, and I think they wound up really shining as characters. Were there any characters that you were surprised that you enjoyed writing as much as you did? Like that kind of took on a life of their own? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh I think, well, one easy instance uh, was this character called Manchito, um, and, and he was kind of like a Pokemon. Um, he was just this weird little alien that, that uh, Pelletier threw into the background of one you know panel, and uh, and I ha- every time that, that he would put him in, I would just have him say, Manchito! That was like his only dialogue. But, <laughs> but by the end of the series, we had all grown to love that little guy so much that, that we made him I think at one point he hulks out, you know, and you never knew this for 20 issues that he had this power, you know, and, and so sometimes you get these weird pet characters that become favorites amongst the, you know, either the fans or the creative team. And um, so that was a, a weird little example of a character that took on his, his own life. Um, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the others. I mean, you know, because because Evan Lee and, and, and Kane were always going to be focal characters. I think the lizard lady, um, who was like a you know reptilian alien woman, mm-hmm. uh, she she uh, she became more than we had anticipated. Uh, you know, you always hear people talk about, oh well, you know, then the characters sort of take a life of their own and start telling you what they do, you know, and and it's really like that. So when it's working right. Um, did you know from the beginning that you were going to be using Compton as much as you did? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, when I, I'm trying to think when this was, I think my son was two years old when I, when I moved down. Um, but I had spent like about two or three years watching a lot of Dragon Ball Z because <laughs> when he was a baby, I'd wake up like, you know, six thirty in the morning or whatever, be feeding him in the kitchen. And that was the only thing that was on TV that, that I cared to watch. And at first I thought it was awful, you know? Oh my God, these guys are just standing around screaming and they've been doing the same thing for a week. But <laughs> having it on as background noise while I was, you know, taking care of my kid, I, I came to realize Dragon Ball Z is genius. It's really, really good. Um, I learned so much from watching that show just about pacing and, 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 and somehow coming up with something that would top the last big thing you did. Just when you think you can't push it up anymore, you crank it up a little more, you know. And so um, Compton was essentially the Vegeta of, of uh, negation, you know, 
the he, he was short like Vegeta, he was nasty like Vegeta, and yet you sense that there was he wasn't all bad, you know. Um, uh, it, it's like like Sinestro's like that, maybe not short, but you know, those are the most interesting bad guys, the frenemy bad guy, the one that you could see you know having a team up with every now and then. Uh, and uh, and then you know Paul came up with an amazing design for him. And we figured out crazy things for him to do with those tentacles that he had coming out of his head. You know, and again, it, it, the character took on his own life. We gave him a family. We gave him a dog. <laughs> I love that dog. Yes, yes. Um, what was this? Was it Chomper or was Chomper the puppy? I can't remember. I can't remember. It's so long, but man, you know, it was really the, the funnest uh, assignment I think I ever did. And, and to this day, I love Paul Pelletier like a brother. Um, he is the hardest working, um, just, you know, the best guy. I'd take a bullet for him. Now, I, I have to ask. I know it's. I know. I think you, you, you put stuff online years ago. But um, Negation War obviously ended in the middle of the storyline, which for fans was very heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, anything you can say about how it would have gone? I mean, I know it's been so many years. And I know. I think at one point you did put some notes online about it. Yeah. Um, um, anything you could talk to about it? Sure. I, I think that I might have written one more script than saw the light of day. You know, like um, I don't think I completely had broken the story down much further than than what actually got printed. But we knew where it was, uh, the broad strokes of where it was going. And essentially, uh, you know, negation war was was where we were bringing together all of the. Uh, uh, cross-gen stories all the sigil stuff that had been going on in the other books um, uh, basically was all funneling into this one story and it pitted the uh, the sigil characters of, of the regular cross-gen universe against the the bad guys from negate the negation universe and um, and on one side you've got uh, in negation you've got the god emperor Charon um, who's this you know super cosmic being um, and, uh, and his opposite number in the regular negation universe was a guy called Danik, who was also a godlike being. And every one of those uh, little uh, uh, companion characters in all the cross-gen books, all the guys with orange eyes who always hung around with the main character, mm-hmm. that was an aspect of Danik. That was actually it – was, it was him, but he could sort of make, you know, split off little versions of himself that would, that would monitor the character that he had given the sigil to. So – so essentially, all of this bad stuff that was going on, you know, in these people's lives was Danik's fault because he's the one that came along and gave him powers, and, and you know, and and, and uh, so it was kind of a weird relationship with him. You know, he was in theory supposed to be the good guy, but we always kind of viewed him as as just a real troublemaker. <laughs> and Charon was definitely a bad guy. Um, uh, and and both of them, okay. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far, but just bear with me. Danik was originally an Atlantean who had gone through some sort of a process that gave him godlike powers. Charon was a human who had done the same process in a slightly different way and gotten godlike powers. So originally they were both normal people. Um, and uh, and then there was one more character called Apollyon who was Charon's sort of devil enemy, you know, who lived in a little pocket universe. Um, and uh, that was like hell. And he looked like the devil. And, uh, and so um, in Negation War, uh, Sam, who's the main character from Sigil, was supposed to lead the army of, negation, uh, of, um, 
of uh, sigil people against the forces of negation. But I think in the third or fourth um, uh, issue, Sam gets killed. Okay. Oh, shit. Yeah. So we were going to kill him off. Um, the uh, the lawbringers who were like the uh, the you know the bad guys you know the, the Green Lantern Corps if you will or, or, or Sinestro Corps of um, of Charon kill off the first okay most of, of the first who were these godlike beings you know um, and uh, and so it's looking really bad for for the good guys in this war and uh, and when Sam dies um, uh, Kane has to step up and uh, and take his place and you know. And they're all like, what? This guy doesn't even have any powers. You know, what's he going to do? But Kane comes up with a plan. And the way this whole thing was going to end is they were going to lure Charon and Danik into Apollyon's little pocket universe, his little hell dimension, um, and set off a, a device that undid their their empowerment, that basically turned them back into an Atlantean and a normal human. Okay? And when they do that, um, Obregon Kane beats them both almost to death with a toilet bowl. <laughs> I think uh, Pelletier came up with that toilet bowl thing. And if you look in the first issue of, uh, of Negation War, there's a planet that gets blown up, and when you see the aftermath and all the debris of the planet floating around, there's a toilet bowl in the foreground. So <laughs> it, it's weird, but that's how we were going to end it. He was going to beat them both to death with a toilet and then walk off and leave them at the mercy of Compton. Um, and... Uh, uh, I think we were kind of working out our own frustrations in this story, though, because this was all happening at the time when everybody knew that the, the studio was going down the drain. And in a sense, you know, everybody had their own idea of who represent, you know, who Charon was supposed to represent and who Danik was supposed to represent. And I think we all just wanted to beat someone with a toilet bowl. So <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. That's, that's what you missed. <laughs> That's what I missed in Negation War. How many how many issues was it originally going to be, by the way? I think five. Five? Okay. So, yeah. we, so we got two of the five. Yeah. And it ends on a good cliffhanger, too, because uh, you end with uh, where the first live with the Lawbringers about to massacre them all. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was all – it was going to go very dark. Well, oh, it, the, the book was always dark, though. Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was fun, though. We, we tried to make it kind of mean-spirited. Now, what was it like kind of launching, you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Route 666 and kind of being able to really uh, stretch your mind in different directions? Because those are very different types of books compared to what you've been writing previously. Yeah. Well, um, uh, okay. Uh, In the case of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, that was actually uh, uh, Mike Perkins' idea to begin with. He came to me and he he was like, hey, you know, I got this idea where what if – Sean Connery and, and uh, Roger Moore and, and, you know, all of them were Bond, you know, that it's not that they're, the, they're different actors playing the same person, but that James Bond is almost like a title that is passed on from one spy to the next, you know, and at any given time, one person is running around calling themselves James Bond, you know, and it scares the hell out of the bad guys because they're like, damn, didn't we just kill that guy? You know, um, and uh, so... His idea was that it would be a spy named Charlie Basildon, um, but that was just the name that you assumed when you stepped into this role. Um, and uh, there had been Charlie Basildon's, you know, or Charles Basildon's going, you know, for, for many years. And and uh, and he said, wouldn't it be cool, you know, if, if at any given time Basildon has an apprentice and that person is waiting to step into the Basildon role in case, you know, the main guy dies. Um, hmm. 
So that's kind of what, what we started with. But I was also a big Bond fan. And what I love about the old Bond films is how gleefully, uh, horrifyingly misogynistic they are. You know, um, it, it's they're a product of their time. But, um, uh, you know, you, you go back and look at something like uh, uh, You Only Live Twice. And he's slapping girls' asses as they walk by and making all these cracks and sleeping with people. Um, uh, you know, a lot of times Bond will sleep with a woman and kill her in the same movie. You yeah. know, yeah, it's horrifying. And I'm like, well, let's go with that. Let's say Bond is just a complete uh, sociopath, you know, and this and uh, um, and the woman who has become the new apprentice has to deal with this dude. And it's almost like, uh, you know, Hong Kong Fooey, you know, he had that cat that was always sort of saving the day for him, even though everybody thought Hong Kong Fooey was the, the hero. You know, okay, so it's kind of all over the place, but you get the idea, right? And 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 that's how um, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang came together. So, um, so I can't even remember what the character's name was, um, the the female character who um, who has to become his uh, uh, his understudy. Um, but he tricks her at first when they're supposed to meet, and winds up, you know, sleeping with her, and then reveals that he's Charlie Basildon, and it's you know. And so she's just pissed off at him the rest of the time, you know, and he thinks it's so funny, but he's a real shit. And, uh, and that's how we tried to play it. We had a great time with it. And I wish something had been done with it because, you know, um, Archer came along and out, out kiss, kiss, bang, banged us, you know? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but this was all pre, you know, pre Archer. Um, so we had a good time with that. Uh, and, uh, with kiss, kiss, bang, uh, with, um, route 666, I knew I wanted to do a horror book, uh, and um, and I kind of came up with this framework for it where it was uh, like a 50s, you know, it kind of borrowed a lot from 50s horror movies. You know, we had it in a, in a 1950s, 1960s environment because I love that time period anyway. Um, and, um, and it also gave us a, a, a weird framework that we could do any kind of horror story. Um, you know, so we had a, a slasher story and we had a you know zombies from the deep story and you know devils and and all kinds of different stuff um i also tried to get a, as much of my own childhood fears and stuff in there uh there's a scene and i have the, the splash page up in my office um where uh there's a, a character who's a an fbi agent but he's a germaphobe you know uh and he's got irritable bowel syndrome you know <laughs> and and so he he's in some like a bunker, you know, um, like a bomb shelter and he has to use the bathroom and it's just nasty as hell in there. And he's like spraying his, uh, disinfectant and this demon comes up out of the toilet. Um, and that was totally from my four year old fear of the toilet. There's a lot of toilet talk today, isn't there? <laughs> I like that you were working through some childhood traumas right there. Yes. Must've been, I must've had a, a hard time, uh, potty training, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow it all worked. And Carl Moline, the artist on it, um, also remains one of my very best friends to this day. He did an outstanding job. Um, he's got this sort of weirdly – it's cartoony and naturalistic at the same time, his, his style. Uh, that dude should should be ruling the world by now. Now, how did, now when CrossGen kind of went under, it looks like almost right away you're working for Marvel on Exiles. How did that kind of come about? Well, um, uh, when – when I first started seeing some some uh, danger signs at um, at CrossGen, 
you know, when it first started looking like, uh oh, you know, maybe we're not doing so well, you know, maybe we're making the same mistakes that Valiant did. I talked to Mark about it and a few other people. Uh, they didn't seem to share my concerns. Um, you know, we did our best, but at some certain point, it became pretty clear that we were not going to make it. But it was still, you know, a few months out. You know, the end hadn't come yet, but I could tell we were we weren't going to pull out of this uh, nosedive. So. You know, like I said earlier, I had met uh, Joe Casada um, uh, and uh, Axel a long time before. Uh, I think Joe was still uh, um, editor in chief at the time at, at, uh, at Marvel, and um, so you know, I'm looking around at the studio, and there and there's a, a murderer's row of, of of great talent in there who are all going to be out of a job pretty soon. You know, so I reached out to um, to uh, somebody at, at DC. And, uh, you know, basically saying, hey, look, you know, there's going to be a lot of talent available here. You guys should maybe take a look. And, uh, and the answer I got back was, um, uh, well, yeah, have them send, send their samples. And then I, I uh, you know, texted Joe, I think, and told him the same thing. And Joe texted back, I'm going to be down there on, on Saturday, set up a meeting. And, uh, and for me, that was a real, you know, instructive moment. Uh, um, because DC's like a family to me. I love those people. Um, but, uh, you know, you got to kind of hand it to Joe that he, he went there, you know. Um, he actually showed up. Uh, we arranged a meeting at a, um, at a local bar. And I think that I had told maybe, you know, 10 or 15 people, hey, you know, come on out and meet, meet this guy. Show him your stuff. You know, it can't hurt. You know, maybe you can kind of set up your next thing, if, you know, if things come to an end here. And then we showed up over there, and, and I think most of the studio showed up. Like, word got around, and everybody <laughs> was, was scared, you know? And uh, and so when you look at – I mean, it really went well. Um, uh, Joe met a lot of folks there, and uh, the night went well. And I think that, you know, a lot of folks wound up getting work. Um, they probably would have gotten work anyway because they were, you know, so talented – but, uh, you know, sometimes I like to look at the lineup, you know, of, of stars over at, at Marvel and think, oh, maybe I, I had a little something to do with, you know, uh, getting those people over there, you know. And, it, I mean, there was obvious people that you would have wanted to get from, from CrossGen, like, you know, Jimmy Chung. Um, but Steve McNiven wasn't a household name at that point. Oh, you know? yeah. And, and I was – my jaw hit the floor when I saw that guy's stuff, you know. And he was the bullpen guy at, at, at CrossGen, you know. He was the apprentice. And you know, I, I went to the front office. I'm like, "You have got to lock this guy down. He is a star." And they're like, "Steve, really?" <laughs> so, you know, um, I, I, I may be overstating things. I, I'm not trying to impugn anybody's judgment. You understand? It's just, um, it, it's nice how things worked out for a lot of those guys. And uh, but what I'm getting at, as far as for me, was that part of what came out of that meeting was that Joe and I started talking about, "Hey, you know." what are you doing next? And I'm like, I don't know, man, what do you got? And, uh, Mike Martz, uh, called me up about exiles. Um, I'm fairly certain that that was a direct consequence of, of, you know, um, that meeting. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I pitched him some exile stories and, and wound up doing close to 50 issues of exiles, I think. Something um, like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and also, uh, they gave me some issues of rogue and, uh, a Spider-Man miniseries. That was a good time. 
Now, Exiles, I mean, I, I feel like that's, for me, that's like, when I think of your name, I, I obviously think Negation, but also obviously think of Exiles. What was it about Exiles that clicked for you or seemed to click for you uh, as a reader reading your stuff? Um, it was such a great premise, you know, like when, when they asked me about it, I hadn't read the book yet. Um, uh, I, uh, oh man, I'm blanking out. I know Mike McCone was the artist. Um, uh, Judd Winnick wrote it originally. Judd Winnick, yes. Yeah. Uh, that was a total brain fart because I was a, I was a big fan of his at that point anyways. I thought he did really good stuff on, on Green Lantern. Um, uh, and I worked with him in an editorial capacity too, before I left Vertigo. So great guy. Um, but when I read that book, I was totally intimidated. Holy crap. It was such a great premise of, of just, you know, basically sliders, uh, you know, going from basically uh, a slightly different version of all your favorite Marvel stories. And that's, you know, to write that book, all you had to do was think back, what Marvel stories did I love? And how can I put a little bit of a twist on them? You know, and that kind of made it easy, you know. And then the other thing, of course, was that just like negation – no one was safe in, in exiles. So, you know, characters dropped like flies on that one. No, did you ever get any flack from readers for that? Because uh, by the time you were on it, it's been around three or four years. The cast was starting to get, not stale, but I think people were getting a little bit maybe complacent uh, with the roster being a certain way. And obviously, throughout your tenure, you definitely moved people in and out of the book. What was it like with fan reaction? Uh, I don't think I ever got any real flack uh, about that. I think that people knew going in that, you know, that was the deal with Exons, that, you know, even your favorite character was likely to die. Um, and, uh, and it made it exciting. So, uh, you know, my favorite character in there was Mimic and I killed him off. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it was okay. Uh, you know, it was just, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and in fact, if I hadn't killed off somebody, uh, for a few issues, uh, Mike Martz would be like, hey, dude, you know, what's going on? <laughs> you know, we need to keep things dangerous. I remember he gave me that note every, every, you know, now and then, uh, which was great. So, yeah, I was encouraged to just go for broke on that thing. Now, with, uh, with Killing Off Mimic, what, was, what kind of led you to that conclusion that it was time? I, I don't remember, you know. Uh, I think it, it might, if anything, it probably had to do with the fact that I liked him so much, you know, <laughs> that that I kind of felt like on this book, you have to be willing to, you know, kill your darlings, you know, and, and uh, literally. Uh, and, and it just kept changing. That, that book yielded some really fun moments, though. Um, uh, one of my favorite things about it was being able to revisit the new universe, mm-hmm. which was this, you know, short-lived thing that they did back in 86. But I was one of the ten people that was buying those books. <laughs> and, uh, so Starbrand and, you know, Nightmask and all those guys, I really liked those. And... Uh, what was Sorry. it like actually putting together the world tour? Because that was it. I, I, I want to say this, but I don't mean it in a negative way, but it did feel like a shot in the arm for the book because it kind of ratcheted up the stakes because you had, you know, they were kind of doing all these jumps to find the villain and you got to bring in all these very classic worlds and characters. So yeah. it definitely felt like, you know, kind of a, not, again, I, I want to say revitalize the book, but it makes it feel like it wasn't good before that. And it was always solid, but it no, definitely no, no. felt like it added a new sense of energy. But, you know, actually, um, I totally don't take that in a bad way. It, it did revitalize the book. And you have to, you know. Um, uh, I mean, how long does a book last these days? You know, if, you're, if you get 24 issues out of a series these days, you know, you're beating the odds. And, uh, and so back then, it was 
kind of starting to go that way, and, and the need to keep somehow, you know, giving the book a, a kick in the ass was definitely there. So, you know, no offense taken at all. That's totally what we wanted to do. Um, I think we also wanted to make it uh, a series of very high-profile, recognizable destinations. Not that New Universe was one of them, you know, <laughs> but, you know, I think we did House of M when, you know, like we crossed over when that thing was actually happening, and Age of Apocalypse, and, you know, some of the other major um, uh, continuities at the time. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it did help out. Um, gosh, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Are there are there any realities that you didn't get a chance to visit that you would have liked to that were recognizable? I don't think so. I mean, honestly, I could have kept writing that book for a long time, um, and uh, at a certain point, I had to step off of it. Um, there was just some other shifts going around, and, and you know, it was like musical chairs. I just you know, kind of bumped out, got bumped out. Uh, it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I, I was totally enjoying that book. But I also don't feel like I left any stone unturned. I would have just kept looking for other Marvel stories that I enjoyed, you know, trying to revisit them. What was it like working with uh, Jim Calafiore? Jim and I worked on a lot of stuff together, and we met back at Valiant when I first started. Oh, really? Yeah. He used to do a book called Armarines for them, and, I mean, he did other stuff for them. That, that's the one that, that sticks out in my memory. Um and, uh, and so our paths have crossed many times since. Um, so it was kind of comfortable, you know. It was like, oh, yeah, I, I know Jim, you know. Let's do this. Um, and so we had a good time on that book. Uh, and then at some point, because it came out, uh, I think we did 18 books a year. So I'm not sure how that schedule worked out. But, you know, there was a lot of months where it was two books. So it was something that one artist kind of couldn't handle. So we always had to work someone else in there. Um, and at first it was it was uh, Mizuki Sakakibara, um, who was this lovely uh, um, uh, Japanese uh, artist that I got to meet in San Diego one year. Um, it was her and, and Calafiori, and then I think it was Calafiori and, and uh, Pelletier. Now, did you, was it, uh, how did Pelletier get involved? Was that you kind of saying, hey, this guy is great, I worked with him before? Yes. Or? Yeah, I was begging for him. You know, I was having a great time with Jim. It wasn't anything, you know, uh, about that. But any chance to work again with with uh, Paul after negation, you know, I'd get my right arm. You know, so uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that I begged and pleaded, and and but it didn't take a lot of cajoling because he's he's super talented. No, absolutely. Now around this time, you also did the Spider-Man Breakout miniseries. What yeah. was it like to be able to write Spider-Man? Um, Okay, that's a funny one because, you know, Spider-Man is such an iconic and central and, and vital character in, in, in the superhero firmament, but he was never one of my faves, you know? Um, I don't know why, uh, but I think everybody's got characters like this, you know? Um, and uh, and Spider-Man never really spoke that much to me. So, um, so it was a weird mix of, oh my God, I can't believe I got to write Spider-Man, and yet wow, what am I going to say with this guy, you know? <laughs> I, I've never sat up nights thinking about writing a Spider-Man story, you know? And because it was the breakout uh, thing, you know, it was in conjunction with this whole big storyline where a bunch of supervillains broke out, I think I probably lavished more attention on the villains than I did on, on uh, Peter Parker. It, it did feel like um, 
almost like a new iteration of the older Deadly Foes of Spider-Man kind of idea because you're right, it was a little bit more villain-focused. Uh, yeah. Spider-Man was still there, but Spider-Man was almost the antagonist. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it worked out. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I, I would jump at the chance to write him again, but I, I don't know that in that particular story that I ever really hooked into him. How did you choose which villains you were going to use in that book, or were they kind of presented to you? Like, how did the book even come about, I should say? Like, well, obviously New Avengers was happening. How did they kind of pitch this? Um, uh, I think Warren Simons was the editor on it. Um, he's currently the um, editor-in-chief over at, uh, at the New Valiant. Um, and those guys are doing great, great stuff, by the way. Uh, I don't know if you read any of their books. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, he reached out to me about this thing, and basically they uh, – they were doing several tie-ins to this breakout uh, event that, that was in Avengers um, back when Bendis was writing it. I think uh, – I can't remember who was drawing it. Um, I think it was Finch. Yes. Yes, it was. Um, and uh, so there was this master list of bad guys that had broken out of uh, the block, I think it was, um, uh, the you know the Supermax uh, for, for villains. And so I got to choose from that list. And, uh, and I chose a couple that I, I didn't wind up getting to use because they were getting used in something else. Um, but I tried to go with ones that, that I loved. The UFOs, I think I had seen in, in an issue of The Hulk uh, shortly after issue 300 or something, back when I was a teenager reading The Hulk. And, uh, and I loved them for no good reason. They were just weird, <laughs> screwy characters. They were like the, the, you know, the, the bad version of the Fantastic Four. But I always wanted to do something with them. So that was definitely a, a choice. Um, the Mandrill was something that kind of got suggested to me but wound up being a lot of fun. What a weird character. You know, he looks like a big monkey, but he's got pheromones that makes everybody fall for him. <laughs> so, you know, so, something about his weird monkey butt makes makes the girls go crazy. And, uh, you know, so I tried to have some fun with that too. Gosh, I'm it was just a weird grab bag of bad guys, but I think the UFOs were the real, you know, victory for me and no one else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I, I do remember like it. Um, that was the first time I ever really noticed the UFOs and actually enjoyed them. So I do yeah. give you credit for that. Cool. Um, now at the same time, you started working, I guess on Supergirl and the Legion of superheroes. Yeah. Now, what was that? First of all, I mean, obviously a, a change in company culture because now you're going back from Marvel to DC, yeah. uh, which, as you said, was kind of like a family way back when. What was yeah. it like to kind of come on board and start writing that book and take over from Mark? Well, uh, Mark actually facil- facilitated that one. I think that when he needed some help, you know, he was, I think, uh, overscheduled or whatever and just needed, you know, somebody to kind of help him out and uh, – and reached out to me, God bless him. And, and uh, uh, Legion of Superheroes are also one of my all-time favorites. I, I would love to write them again. Um, uh, so you know that was that was a really welcome thing. Um, and, and part of what was funny about that too was that when I le- when I left uh, DC as an editor, and for many moons afterwards, anybody internally at DC would only think of me as oh he was that editor who quit. You know, uh, it. I think it took writing at two other uh, companies to kind of be accepted back as a writer, you know? Mm. Like if I had gone back and tried to get writing work immediately, no way. But uh, by, by that time, I think I had enough of a track record at other companies, and especially being at Marvel, um, because the way that the big two work sometimes, it's almost like you're dating, you know? And, uh, 
And if I'm dating Marvel and DC sees me out, at, at, you know, having dinner in a movie with Marvel, then DC gets a little jealous, you know, and, and vice versa. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, seriously, sometimes it's like that where it's not just, you know, you're getting somebody because you know they're going to do a good job, but it's also, hey, I got to steal some talent from the other guy, you know? Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I kind of, maybe I'm reading something into it, but it kind of felt like being at Marvel made me more attractive to DC. And thank God they, you know, they took a chance and, and, and threw some work my way. Because um, most of my work has been at DC ever since, and like I said, those guys, you know, really, they're like family now. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I got to work on uh, on Legion of Superheroes, and uh, and then they gave me uh, uh, Birds of Prey. Oh yeah, uh, and and uh, you know that was also daunting because Gail had made that book her own. You know, she did such a great job, um, and I don't know if you know Gail Simone. Um, but she is just – she's the most big-hearted, you know, warm, uh, encouraging person, you know. So I came in there thinking, oh, geez, there's no way I can ever match what she did with these characters. But when she saw what I was doing, she was so nice about it. It gave me the confidence to just keep going with it, you know. And uh, and it turned out to be, you know, a fairly successful run. I don't think I ever matched her, you know – her level with those characters, but I feel like it, I did right by uh, Black Canary and, and uh, Oracle and you know the rest of them. What uh, what what surprises or what came about during writing Birds of Prey that you was a big surprise or that you really enjoyed that you maybe didn't expect? Um, I have some of my very favorite single issues in that run. Um, so there was there was one where um, uh, where Lady Blackhawk. It's just after um, uh, Big Barda had died, and Lady Blackhawk sort of goes on a bender, and and it becomes this sort of planes, trains, and automobiles thing, and she winds up at, at uh, Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club, you know, the the bar from the right stuff where they put up pictures of the you know of pilots that have fallen, and she puts up a picture of uh, of Big Barda, you know, on the the Wall of Fame, and it was you know. It was a one-issue thing that I just felt really worked nicely structurally. There was another one where where uh, Barbara Gordon goes to a uh, some sort of a tech convention and winds up having lunch with a calculator, and I don't think either one of them knows who the other one is. Oh yeah, and, and that was another one that worked out really nicely. Um, and it all went back to an issue of the Doom Patrol that um, Grant Morrison did ages ago. Um, uh, it was a, it featured the brand. Does this ring a bell for you? Because it's the best single comic issue I think I've ever read. Uh, it's, it's it like, doesn't actually, no. It's like a, a little Chinese puzzle box of, of structure. It's so nicely done. And I won't spoil it for you, but um, if you ever see uh, one of his old uh, Doom Patrol issues with, with you know, the brain and Masumo, uh, the, the crazy uh, uh, gorilla with the red beret and the machine gun, um, it is so good. And, and I read that and stopped there. I want to do that someday, you know. I want to do long story arcs, but I also want to do these beautifully structured, you know, one and done stories. And uh, so some of my favorite Birds of Prey ones was where I was trying to do that. Now, you worked as part of the, I guess, the, um, the staff on Countdown. What was it just like working on something that large and that kind of, um, like with such a crazy schedule and kind of people doing pieces of it, trying to keep it on a weekly schedule? What was that like just internally? Well, uh, 
my um, my uh, contract with DC that led to a lot of great things. So I'll, I'll always be grateful for that. But I think Countdown, most of the people who work on it would look back on that as an example of how not to uh, do a big event. You know, um, it just it didn't work the way that 52 did. 52 was a brilliant success. Behind the scenes, I think everybody, you know, was ready to hang themselves on 52 because it wasn't an easy birth, you know. But what hit the stands was great. Um, I think that maybe they learned the wrong lessons or, or they learned the right lessons too well when, when they went to uh, Countdown because they changed the approach for Countdown, and I don't think it yielded a very good comic. And it was supposed to be the big event that year, but meanwhile, um, uh, uh, Jeff was doing Sinestro Core War, and that was kind of like the B event, and of course that worked brilliant, you know. That wound up being the, the main, you know, sold the show, you know, rightfully so. Yeah, that was that was an incredible. I mean, I, I still remember reading the uh, the last chapter of Sinister War and just being like, oh my god, like this is amazing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it, so, it was hard to compete, I guess. Yeah, in that kind of that summer, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was already doing great, but but. Then, that just tore the, the roof off of that whole franchise. And, you know, never looked back. Now, where, um, when you wrote Rebels, what what was the? How did that book kind of come about? Like, did you originally pitch that? Was some of those pitched to you? Like, where did the outgrowth of that series come from? Um, it was a, a series L E G I O N eighty nine that was a personal favorite back when I was just a reader, um, and it was you know very much the same thing. It was uh, uh, real docs. You know, Brainiac 2 puts together this, you know, uh, uh, Space Cops for Hire, kind of like a, uh, a Green Lantern Corps for profit, if you will. And I used to love reading that book because Earl Docks was the most wonderful anti-hero. He was mean-spirited, um, and yet somehow he was actually trying to do the right thing. But if he had to run your grandmother over to do it, he wouldn't think twice. <laughs> and uh, I loved that character. And uh, Lobo was in it. It was just so much fun. I had been pitching the comeback for L-E-G-I-M um, uh, for and, uh, and the other thing too was that it kind of hooked into Legion uh, uh, of Superheroes mythology uh, and that appealed to me so when I finally got it greenlit it was it was the Legion's what 50th anniversary 75th I don't know some sort of anniversary here for Legion of Superheroes it must have been 50 and uh and I was like, you know, come on, Dan, now's the time to do this. You know, I finally sold Dan on, on, uh, on giving it the go-ahead. Um, but uh, but then, kind of at the last minute, they said, well, let's do this, but you can't call it L-E-G-I-O-N. Um, uh, you know, because people will get confused and think it's Legion of Superheroes. Like, oh, no, no! Um, <laughs> that's why I was calling it Rebels, you know, which was the second that that book had had in its original uh, incarnation. Um, and, and I would think that we probably shed, you know, 10,000 sales just for that title change. Um, and nevertheless, it was, I think, uh, creatively, it was it, it worked. You know, um, Andy Clark, the artist on it, was, was amazing. Uh, and, uh, you know, that first issue was one of my proudest moments uh, at, at DC Comics. Oh, and in really? fact, wow. uh, I think that uh, Jeff had had me say that he really liked that first issue uh, script for uh, for 
rebels. And so about eight issues in, I could tell that our, our sales were not going to sustain us very long. But I knew that they were going to do this uh, uh, uh night crossover thing. And so I was like, uh, you know, can I play along? You know, you're cosmic, I'm cosmic, you know, it kind of makes sense. And they were like, yeah, sure. And, uh, and I think that the crossover I did with Blackest Night worked so well, that's why they decided to invite me to, to do some Green Lantern stuff. Oh, really? Okay. Now, I guess we, we should talk about Green Lantern then. Sure. So what, what was it like kind of coming on board and, and writing the Green Lantern Corps? And I think you took over from uh, Peter, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he had really established the, the tone of the GLC as a book, but what was it like kind of taking over from him in the middle of the kind of, um, I guess it was right around Brightest Day, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, it, was, it came as a surprise, I'll tell you that. Uh, I was on a family trip, driving along, I got a phone call from uh, Eddie Bergen and, uh, and then he's like, hey, Jeff's on the phone with me too. And uh, I was like, okay, great. Yeah, you know, this is exciting. And then uh, Jeff says, Tony Bernard, welcome to the Green Lantern Corps. And I'm like, what's he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> what? They're like, we want you to write a Green Lantern book. I was like, oh my God, then I had to pull over because I was going to crash the car, you know? I had wanted to do Green Lantern like, Everybody's got their dream characters, and I mentioned that Aquaman is one of them. Green Lantern was always one of them, too. You know, the whole idea that, that his superpower is essentially his imagination is so attractive. And, uh, you know, and then Jeff had gone and taken that whole concept and, and exploded it into something so much bigger than, than I ever thought. So, you know, that's how that started. Um, and uh, they said, yeah, we want you to write Green Lantern Corps. And then I was like, no, wait a minute. What about because Pete was my friend in editorial, and, uh, and Pete's a terrific guy and remains a friend. You know, so I was kind of like, whoa, you're offering me the thing I always wanted, but I got to stab my friend in the back? And uh, and they were like, no, Pete's doing the, the, the other new book, so it's all good. So, you know, three of companies uh, for a while, and then, uh, you know, it's great fun. Now, what was it like creating uh, the character of the Weaponer? 